0: Welcome to Season 1 of Bristlecone Firesides, casual conversation around a virtual fireside about faith, the earth, the universe, and everything. In this first season, we will be exploring foundational themes of spiritual practice rooted in the earth. We are your hosts, Abby and Madison. Join us as we strive to re-enchant the natural world with an ecologically based spirituality that is centered in sacred text, rooted in the earth, and lived through the activist issues facing us today. I was a little nervous to do this episode how come just because politics is so hard to talk about these days it
1: is it is it's hard to talk about without it being like some overblown conversation like I was just talking to my roommate last night whose brother is like an anti masker and she was saying she was like yeah, I can't have, I can't have any kind of conversation with him without it turning into a political conversation because she's like, everything that I do that is contrary to what he does feels like an affront to his political beliefs. Yeah. And, and so it's like, and, and then it launches into this whole conversation of everything is a personal attack at you. Yeah. Regardless of whether or not it's anything related to the political sphere.
2: Yeah.
1: And and like we live in a heightened political society because of COVID where even COVID, something that is, that shouldn't be a political issue has become a political issue too. So right. it, it mirrors these things Yeah. like it's, climate change, you know, where yeah. it's not a political issue, but it becomes one.
0: So just as a... <laughs> um what kind of an issue is climate change
1: it's a world issue it's
0: a world issue
1: yeah i mean it goes without saying (laughs) but it but it also it goes without saying it
0: it goes without saying that it's that it's a world issue and that there's many layers to climate change and environmental issues it goes without saying but let's say it anyways what kind of an issue is climate change?
1: It's a world issue. Yeah, but I think I think you have a group of people, and maybe larger than we want to admit, that still believe it's a political issue, or that it's a world issue, but the necessity to provide, uh, or or like to take action is a political issue. Right. And so in that sense, it becomes deprioritized because of the other things that take precedence over it in the political sphere. Right. So it, it's hard to just say environmental issues or climate change are, are world issues.
0: Yeah. Especially because there's, there's also a lot more layers to it than that. It's yeah. also a moral issue.
1: Yeah,
0: it is. It is a spiritual issue. It is. It is the issue of of communities, of your lived experience in your own neighborhood, right? It's just, check, check, check. Exactly. It's right? a racial issue. It's a racial issue. It's a social justice issue. Um it, it's climate change and the Anthropocene and environmental issues at large, uh like intersect with every issue human beings deal with.
1: Yes. I don't know if you just saw my eye skit. I did. (laughs) I did. I'm
0: really excited.
1: (laughs) Well, so uh, this is something that I've been thinking about a lot just with, you know, being in classes and and focusing on this within my own thesis. But and I'm not talking about this to talk about myself. We can cut that out. Please. We love
0: you when you talk about yourself. No,
1: but I I just have recently been so um, like engrossed in this idea of intersectionality. And it was something that was introduced to me last semester um, with one of my professors, uh, but has just been a resurfacing concept that I keep thinking about. Um, and it's this idea that climate change does not exist in a vacuum. It's not an insular issue where we can isolate it um, and and singularly talk about it. I mean, we do. But if we're considering tackling climate change, then it intersects with so many different issues that we don't even realize racial issues um like gender issues all of these other facets that that create problems within our society or that exist as issues within our society are exacerbated or compounded on issues of climate change and i, I it becomes so much more um it, it, it it has so much more weight and it adds gravity to the situation when you consider it as an intersectional issue.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it does. Especially, especially because when these other issues that we, that we deal with like gender or sexuality or racial issues or social justice issues are already, they feel really high stakes these days. Right. Right. And so then you add in the, uh, the, the complication of, of climate change and, you know, the Anthropocene, it just it feels really smothering. Yeah. So uh, for the audience, if you haven't guessed already, today's topic is about uh, is about sp- uh, politics and environmental issues, and why we have to talk about politics.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so. I mean, I think if we don't, it becomes the elephant in the room. Yeah. In a lot of ways, <clears throat> but at the same time. It's almost like damned if you do, damned if you don't. It is. Like we have to talk about it. Yeah. But at the same time, I know it's going to, people will wonder why we're talking about it. If if we want to talk about climate change and environmental issues in the context of
2: religion. Right.
0: Yeah. So, and ultimately, no matter what we, we say about it, we're I, I feel like we're going to end up isolating some part of, Of, you know, our audience.
1: (laughs) Well, and church and state are theoretically separate, right? But
0: hardly, hardly the fact in Utah.
1: (laughs) Well, and even outside of Utah. And hardly the
0: fact in the United States. Yeah,
1: because I think your religion, if you're familiar with uh, Jonathan Haidt, I think is his name. The Righteous Mind. The Righteous Mind. um, That like religion indicates a lot of our foundational ethics and, and how we make political decisions is often informed by those very ethics. So I don't, I don't think that we can necessarily draw that separation, um, as cleanly as we maybe would like. So,
0: so yeah. So why do we need to have the conversation about politics then in the first place? Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll take a stab at that first. Okay. Uh, we have to have the conversation about politics because no matter how much the rest of this, this season, we talk about how, how much, uh, the environment is a spiritual issue and that our relationship with the natural world really, uh, intersects with our spiritual practices in really beautiful ways. Um, and can change the way that you operate in the world. Um, at the end of the day, if we're going to do something about climate change, you have to, it has to be done through the, the, uh, the social machines that we already have in place in order to make change in the world. And that looks like government. It looks like politics, right? So government and, pol- and political action are some of the greatest avenues for change that we have in the world. Uh, they're big, they're ugly, they're destructive. Government can be evil. Government can be bad or a government can be good. Uh, it's just a powerful social machine that we've built and we have to participate in if we're going to try and change the world. Um, And so I've dubbed it, quote unquote, the beast. (laughs) Um, And uh, so if we want communal action and uh, to change to if we want communal action for environmental issues, government and politics is one of the surest paths to do that.
1: Yeah. And I think it's important to note that, like, even as individuals who support climate change action, that we recognize that the government is not gonna be perfect in its pursuits of that either. That like there are no, always no, 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 going no. to be independent or personal, you know, motives or motivations behind even supporting political action mm-hmm. towards climate change. You know, like there are always going to be underlying underlying reasons why a particular um, you know, Government sect or politician is supporting a particular movement or policy, um, and so like we we recognize that that is an issue as well. But I think it's using these kind of moral initiatives that we have, um, and and that we're trying to progress our own, um, you know, moral standings on on particular climate issues. That should indicate how we take political action, right. you know, like, I don't, I don't know how else to say it, but just trying to make the best of the situation that we've been given essentially.
0: Right. So rather than like trying to reinvent the wheel, yeah. we're just dealing with what the terrain is. And yeah. the terrain is we've got this big, ugly machine called politics and government, and we either work with it or we, we don't. Right. And. I know for me personally, I'm not of the personality type or it's just not my way to wash my hands of the scenario and say, I just, I just can't deal with the politics. So I'm just going to ignore it. Right. That's just not who I am. And so that looks like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to participate in this really broken system.
1: I also think too, like that's the quickest way to A, absolve ourselves of any responsibility, but be absolve ourselves of any responsibility. How yeah. can we expect to be climate activists or, or individuals who care about, you know, climate action if we don't participate? Like if we hate that, that system or machine or whatever we want to call it so much. Okay. But at the same time, you can't be upset when, action isn't being taken, you know, like if, if you're not voting, it kind of goes back to that old saying, like, if you're not voting, then you don't get to complain about the decision that was made, Yeah, you know? So I feel that way strongly in this sense that, you know, one of the ways that you can take action is simply just by voting, voting alone and participating, participating. Yeah. Yeah. And then if you don't, you know, that, that again, you're absolving yourself of responsibility, <laughs> but by doing so yeah. you're discounting your own my, voice.
0: My participation in the system earns me the right to fume and vent on Twitter about how much I don't like to <laughs> I'm just kidding. Let's, let's keep talking about, uh, kind of this early question of just, of, of the environment or climate change and, uh, the politis, the politicization, oh my gosh, that's a hard word to say. The politis, why politicization? has, pol- <laughs> why has climate change been politicized and what are the consequences of its politicization?
1: Yeah. Um, where do we want to start? There. There. Okay. Yeah.
0: Like what, why has it been politicized?
1: I think it's really interesting to go back um like a a long time.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, a long time.
1: Uh, way way back.
0: Way way back. No,
1: but I'm just thinking I guess it wasn't that long. Ago. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm thinking about Al Gore. Been Al thinking Al about Gore. Al Gore a little bit. Um and Papa that, Bear. you know him producing his film was like kind of the first Popular yeah. introduction to climate change and the notion of climate change as an issue, right? Um, that we really saw in like everyday society, right? And unfortunately, I think because of that, even though it was probably well intended, I, I mean i I do i'm i'm gonna <laughs> i'm going to say that it was well intended. I think because of that it's been so inherently tied to yeah. Al Gore as a political figure yeah. rather than as a person or individual concerned with climate change. As
0: a instead of a charismatic scientist, it was brand it was it was, it was connected to a political figurehead yeah. instead.
1: And and he was branded in that yeah. way. And therefore he as a kind of figure took the place of his larger party. Yeah. And being kind of the climate change advocate. And, and so I think in some ways the whole democratic party has just taken that on as an issue. And I mean, I don't want to (laughs) like, I don't know, like I don't want to wholly attribute it to that, but I think it is pretty easy to draw those lines based on that, that scenario. And it hasn't always been that way either. I remember taking um, an environmental law class where we talked about Richard Nixon and, and like his influence on, um, you know, just environmental issues and the policies that he drew.
0: Yeah. The whole EPA and the clean Clean air, clean water act all came out of Richard Nixon. who was a card carrying Republican.
1: Right. And, an extremely conservative one at that. So I think to say like environmental issues are wholly assigned to or coming from the Democratic Party is a little bit unfair.
0: It is a little unfair. Although it's 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 unfair historically. Historically, yeah. It might be really fair contemporarily or yeah, but- modern today. I mean it, it's it's maybe changing, but the last 10-15 years, I might I think it's probably fair. Fair to say.
1: Yeah, but I do think there are still some pretty outspoken um, Republicans who support climate change initiatives. I'm right. thinking of Bob Inglis, yeah. right? the South Carolina.
0: Even John Curtis these days, yeah. Mitt Romney.
1: Mitt Romney, yeah. Two I, of the
0: golden boys from Utah.
1: But I mean, like they were even for those statements- And for others, I mean, I'm thinking of Mitt Romney, but like kind of disowned by their political party. party. I mean, Bob Inglis, it was kind of the nail in his coffin to, to support, um, you know, that, those, those kinds of um,
0: policies. Yeah. I think another reason why environmental issues and climate change has been politicized is because, on some level, it has to be politicized, right? If we're going to create action in the world and like actually try and change something. We have to do it through through our political engine, right? Right. Well, we can either do it through our private, through corporations and stuff, and we know how that goes. Um, well, just kidding. I was doing that in air quotes. Um, <laughs> but uh, but if it, if we're going to do it through politics, we have this beast of two political parties, right. which are going to take stands on it in different ways. And so just by, just by nature of engaging the political machine it is going to become a politicized issue. Right. Right. And so I, I like, I don't, I want to be sure, be careful, like that. We're not saying that when something becomes politicized, it automatically, like makes it, it shouldn't makes it bad. Yeah. Right. That like things have to be politicized on some level in order for us to do anything about it.
1: Right. At, at a certain point, like that's the whole point point of getting things going at taking action is being able to say, Hey, this is an issue that's important. And I think we should, you know, prioritize it. I think we should make policies regarding it. Right. And there are always going to be people that feel differently about that or exist on a spectrum of how they feel about that. Um, that will then indicate, you know, whether or not they believe that this policy policy should actually be implemented. Right. And I think it's also important to note that, you know, politics are not the only way to take action. Obviously no, there's, there's certainly not. Yeah. And, and, you know, we talk about that in other episodes, but, um, but that being said, I think this is one more way to make sure that you're taking action yeah. and that your voice is also heard. And it's, it's probably one of the maybe, easier ways I <laughs> yeah, guess well, it's because the machine's already in place. Yeah. It's already there, you know, and, and people are coming up with these, yeah. these policies. Um, and then your job is to say, I either agree or I disagree.
0: So I think one of the other reasons why we have to have this conversation on this podcast in season one of Briscoe and firesides, um, is because there's a ticking clock associated with <laughs> with the, this one, right? Yeah. that that if if climate change were an issue that was on a thousand-year arc of of, you know, escalation. Sure, let's not talk about politics. Let's just talk about the spiritual aspects of this and let's just like hope that the slow burn can can change people's hearts and minds over time. But that's not how it is, right? In 2019, the IPCC or the Inter intergovernmental panel on climate change report in 2019 declared that 2030 is a kind of deadline. And in 2019 that, or 2018, 2019, that gave us like 12 years to do anything. And I mean, you know, we can, we can agree or disagree about the, the, the strictness or the, the fungibility of that 12 year deadline, but here we are two years later and we only just, I mean, so for the audience we are recording these episodes way out of, <laughs> out of order, uh, at the, at the present moment, um, uh, Joe Biden is president and we just barely rejoined the Paris climate accords after, um, president Trump, uh, took us out of the, the climate accords. And so for the last two years, uh, since the, I, that t- 2019, uh, report, we haven't really done anything. We've, d- we've done almost nothing but deregulate, which has caused more problem. Um, and so the ticking clock of climate change, uh forces us to engage this engine of of politics in order to do something about it.
1: Yeah. I saw something today actually uh that was um published by the the UN um and their kind of subsect on um climate change that twenty twenty one is a make it or break it year for climate action is oh what my they gosh. kind of submitted. Um and that, you know, in order to limit global temperature rise um, that we need to reduce emissions um, and reach essentially climate neutrality worldwide by 2050. And so all of these countries that have submitted their, you know, their plans and their reports, um, like the UN is, is saying, you know, this isn't good enough. Like essentially the, every country that not every, but multiple countries who have submitted need to return to the drawing board right. and and actually make, you know, very aggressive plans um, to reduce their climate emissions. And it's interesting because the U.S., obviously, China and India haven't actually submitted their plans yet. And I am, and you know, hard-pressed to believe that we have anything, you know, remotely aggressive enough to actually yeah. achieve this. So I, I mean even sooner than 2030, 2021 is is kind of where we stand right now, yeah, as far as making aggressive plans. So so I, I feel like each year this escalates to a greater and greater point. Like you said, a ticking time bomb and and yeah, I mean you know, I want to be, you know yeah.
0: there like it's not that in when 2030 rolls around, it's going to be like the movie The Day After Tomorrow. We're going to right? be underwater. We're going to... <laughs> I
1: mean, maybe. Maybe. Who knows? <laughs> we, we thought COVID would last, what, one month? We're I was like, like yeah,
0: I'll fly be- <laughs> in May. <laughs> It'll be like a two-week lockdown and we'll, and we'll be done. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe we will be underwater in 2030. But climate change is a, is a process of slow violence, right? And so it's a slow and violent process that with every year we don't do anything. The harder it is to undo what it is what we're doing. Like okay. I'm Elder Uchtdorf gave that talk about he was in a plane, right, and he was by off three by three degrees. Few, he was off by three was, degrees or something like that. Right yeah, talk. Yeah, I think. Yeah, so. it was, I don't know if he was in pre session. Maybe or, it was two. <laughs> two degrees. <laughs> it was, he was off by Someone a matter of degrees, right? Us. Um, But the the reality is is that with every every month and every day that we don't change our course. That's just, it becomes exponentially harder for us a decade down the line to make changes that will actually impact the world. Yeah. Right.
1: And I think I don't, you see a lot of scientists um, who say too little, too late, right? That like probably we're at the point where we're past the point of no
2: return. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe you should turn it off here. (laughs) Just kidding. And we're done.
1: (laughs) So why are we even recording? <laughs> no, but I, I want to, you know, play devil's advocate, but also be the optimist here. Yeah, do it. Yeah. Okay. If those two things can
0: coincide. The for devil's a optimistic advocate. <laughs> There's Bristol and firesides. A lot of things fly here.
1: <laughs> but I'm just thinking about, I, have you seen those memes that say like uh, boomers, like it's always making fun of boomers. And this is not to offend boomers. I promise I'll get to a point where I don't. <laughs> But it's like, oh, boomers pointing fingers that we don't know how to earn money when they're the ones covering up wood floors with linoleum. <laughs> There's another one that I think is like boomers saying we don't know how to make money when they're the ones that destroy the earth or whatever, you know, yeah. like it, there are all these different applications. Right. And, and one of them I'm thinking about is like our ability to reverse um, and largely in, like in part due to. Richard Nixon's plans that and policies that he implemented, but that, you know, rivers were very polluted during the sixties and seventies. And until those policies were fully implemented, you know, it, it, you, you had terrible pollution issues of both air and water, and we've made tons of progress in that realm. So I think it's safe to say that if we're able to implement policies that are effective and that we can you know agree upon compromise perhaps then this shouldn't be a complicated issue it shouldn't become a point of irreversible right like problems right I, we've
0: already demonstrated as a as a as not only as a nation but as a global community the, we can, we can stand under issues like this. Remember, like, uh, I remember, hole. yeah, that yeah. was just what I was going to say. The, the hole in the ozone is that once we, once we banned aerosols, um, the ozone hole patched itself up. And so we were able to actually stand under it. Like, and I remember some, my dad grew up in Provo, Provo, Utah, um, and Geneva Steele. He, I remember he was, t- would tell me stories about how the air quality in, in Utah Valley, uh, when he was growing up was horrible like way worse than anything it's ever been my in modern times. Right.
1: Which is interesting. Cause we probably have what five, like, like a hundred percent more people here. <laughs> exactly.
0: But it's because we've, 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 uh, it was because like the clean air, clean water act, just like you yeah. were saying with the rivers that every year, the air theoretically gets cleaner right. in these valleys, despite us being able to put more people in the, <laughs> despite us being able to put more people in the valleys, um, which is a whole other, yeah. a whole other issue. So we've already demonstrated that these, that this path of action of political action can work. And when I say political action, what that translates to is it translates to regulation, right? which is a four letter word to, to a lot of people, right? That what we mean is it means regulating industries means regulating, uh, manufacturing so that it's cleaner, so that it, it draws its energy from different places. It means, so, yeah. So, unfortunately, that's what it means.
1: <laughs> yeah. I think that's the hard, the hard truth. It's the inconvenient truth. It is truth. an
0: inconvenient truth. <laughs> Thank you, uh, to, Al Gore. To circle back to our original. <laughs> hey, you know what? Jeffrey R. Holland had a, had a fantastic talk called The Inconvenient Messiah. Yeah, and it is really, really good, and I recommend anyone to go read that. But this whole idea is central to what it means to be a spiritual and religious person: is that there are truths in reality that happen to be inconvenient for us, right? And we have to live into those as best we can and not ignore them. Yeah, not pretend that they're not there for this or and like I don't want that. That seems pretending that they're not there. Like sounds it could be that's a little disingenuous to people who who might be skeptical of these issues. Yeah. Um. But that the inconvenience of these issues ought to call us to humility in front of them, to question our own viewpoints, right. and to to bring our skepticism, aim it at ourselves.
1: Yeah, that's so. That's something I've literally never thought about.
0: Oh, great! I'm glad we're having this conversation. No, this then. is.
1: I mean, I'm, this is great. Yeah, uh, I just. I've never thought about, I mean, I think constantly about how, you know, if people were willing to sacrifice like even really small things, meet, you know, once or twice a week yeah. or, um, you know, driving less, you know, making small adjustments that are inconvenient to them, but perhaps would make a large difference if we collectively, you know, agreed upon this. Mm-hmm. And I think about that all the time, like, okay, are, why are we so tied up in, in being selfish or, or, you know, living our lives so conveniently um, right. that, like, we can't sacrifice in this way. But it, it's so true. I've never related it to the gospel or that idea that, like, okay, as, as members of the church, when was the last time being a member of the church was convenient
0: it's like, not. It's Spoiler not. alert! It's not.
1: <laughs> I mean, callings, going yeah. to church. You know, well now only two hours if you're lucky, maybe one on Zoom. Yeah, but but I'm saying, you know, there are all these things that make being a member. It's so much easier to just yeah. coast in some ways. Yeah, it is. And so, why are you a member? You know, what are these things that are tying you to the gospel?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think those things should be considered in the context of environmental issues. Okay. What's at stake here? If we, if we don't start doing these things or if we don't, you know, let these, these conveniences of our lives go, what can I sacrifice to make my children's lives better? My life better, you know, the, the future better.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Wow.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, the, the whole inconvenient part, um, I, I, I want to come back, circle back to it later because we're, we're going to talk about, you know, personal responsibility versus communal responsibility. Right. Uh, and, and kind of teasing out the differences there, but before we get there, um, I, we've already kind of talked about this a little bit, but the, uh, the elephant in the room, yeah. <laughs> uh, so here, here are some statistics <coughs> I got from uh, Jana Reese's book, *The Next Mormons*, which was a survey that her and uh, another scholar did. I don't have you ever heard of that? Did you ever read that book?
1: I know you mentioned it to me because there are some other things in there that aren't necessarily tied to politics,
0: right? Yeah. Yeah. It's the the next Mormon survey is essentially a big survey that was, uh, that was done that was taking a look at the millennial generation and how the millennial generation sizes up compared to the the Gen X and the boomer generation in terms of, it was specifically speaking within the Mormon community um, in terms of things like, like political issues and how we interact with the church. But um, from this book, here's some, some statistics that uh, I that, that I, uh, I pulled out, um, with the boomer generation, 68 identify as Republican, 25 identify as Democrat and 80, 80, 88% identify as independent for Gen X, uh, 59% identify as Republican, 29% identify as Democratic, uh, 12% identify as independent. And for the millennial generation, 46% identify as Republican and 41% identify as Democrat and 13% identify as independent. And what's worth notice, what's worth mentioning is that the millennial generation is still young. And so those numbers will fluctuate over time. And if I had to guess,
1: it'll be even higher, in they'll, Gen Z.
0: they'll, 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 uh, yeah, it'll be even higher in Gen Z and more millennials as the millennial generation ages, yeah. more will become more liberal. That's just my guess.
1: Interesting.
0: Yeah, and so what i what I mean by bringing up the elephant in the room is that, as we've already discussed, that somehow, even though historically speaking, the uh, if we're going to talk politics, the Republican Party has actually been quite responsible on on environmental issues on climate change uh, in in the last decade or so, with few exceptions, as we've already mentioned, like Bobby Inglis and Mitt Romney, um, with uh, with few exception. Uh, the Republican Party has almost washed their hands of this issue and almost almost thumbing their nose at it.
1: Yeah.
0: And so that's why I think we need to talk about the elephant in the room. <laughs>
1: yeah, and I, I also think it's th- that – Because of this, it becomes so much more important to depoliticize it at its foundation that like, yes, we need to use the political system that's in place in order to take climate action. But we're not asking people to switch political parties. We're asking you, you know, to consider this as once again, a moral, a spiritual and, and you know, a, a, a world issue.
0: Yeah. And and not just like on the the global scale of like climate change, but just like in Utah. Community, yeah. yeah. So just in our Utah air even, quality even local or, issues, yeah. right? So I work for the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance, right? And our whole mission is to protect uh Red Rock Country in Utah. Mm-hmm. Um and uh I would I would hazard a guess that if you were to walk up to a stranger on the street and ask them whether or not they thought the Red Rock areas between the national parks ought to be protected, they would say, of course, of course they should be protected. Yeah. Right. Um, and I, I would believe that they actually, that they genuinely believe that and yeah. they're not just saying it right. Um, however, when they go into the voting booth, they're just going to vote for someone who's been in office for a long time, who might not have the, who's, whose, track record on environmental issues in Utah is not very good. Mm-hmm. Right. And so their, their love of Utah's red rock country doesn't translate to political action. Right. Right. There's, there's some kind of a disconnect there. Or
1: votership. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so there's a disconnect there. And so I think that we need to like tease, cause it's, it's so easy for us to say, just getting, just get involved. Just go vote. Right. There's so many people in Utah who vote yeah. and they vote in people like, I'm going to say, I'm going to say a name here and it could alienate people, but it is what it is. Like Jason Chaffetz. Oh
2: yeah. Right.
0: Or, Cough, cough. Governor Herbert, Governor Herbert, or Mike Lee, who are just maybe we should cut those out. Uh, Anyways, um, who vote in people who do not have um, the best interest of the land, or even the people who live in the land at heart, right? Yeah, that they're they're more interested in lining their own pockets with. with lobbying money yeah. than they are of actually protecting these lands that and people, votes, and, staying votes, in yeah, and staying in office. Right. So that's why I, if you were to ask any random person on the street, whether or not they thought red rock country ought to be protected, they would probably say, oh, of course it should, but there's some kind of a disconnect. Do
1: you think we disassociate? I mean, if we're really getting to the root of the issue and Republicans say, yeah, I believe that this needs to be protected Mm -hmm. or any individual for that matter, not just Republicans. But then do we disassociate it to the point where we're letting other issues take precedence over environmental issues and we say we can protect it in another way? Yeah. Or yes, I would like to protect it, but this factor is more important to
2: me Right.
1: AKA economic issues, educational issues, you know, uh, financial issues, you know, like like all of these different issues that then take precedence over environmental issues.
0: Yeah. So in this in the same um, the next Mormon survey, uh, I'm going to I'm going to try and pull the numbers from my memory because I didn't write them down. Um, but there's a a whole, a full list of, of political issues and what percentage of the generations care about these issues. Right. For the boomer generation, environmental issues were only 9%. And for Gen X, it was the exact same 9%. And for millennials, it was, it was 12%, which are, which is not a huge gain. Right. And so I think you're right that there is some kind of disassociation or I don't know if it's a disassociation as much as the scale of the problem is so big That it's hard to focus on it.
1: I think it comes back to that issue of slow violence. So for those who aren't familiar with the issue of slow violence, Rob Nixon introduced this concept of our kind of deprioritization of environmental issues because they don't present an immediate and very, uh, volatile or violent threat, Mm. um, and, and so in that sense, we tend to push them or, or deprioritize them, um, to the point where they're almost forgotten or, or, um, you know, no action is actually taken, um, until it gets to a point where it's almost too late. Right. Um, and environmental issues do that. It, they take such a back burner, um, you know, position because, we don't perceive them as an immediate threat. Yeah. And, you know, again, to to maybe give validation to that mindset, there probably are things that take immediate precedence over environmental issues, such as racial issues or social issues that are a little bit more timely or pressing
0: Gender issues
2: right yeah.
1: now, you know,
2: yeah,
1: and, and involve, you know, human beings who are alive right now.
2: Yeah.
1: But it's hard. It's so hard to say. It is. You know, we value this over this. It should be we value both of these things. Yeah. And and one you know, may take immediate precedence yeah. or or we have to resolve this right now, but that does not mean that environmental issues should be pushed out. Right. I don't know. It, I like I don't yeah. I don't want to be insensitive at all. Yeah. And I and I understand that obviously those issues are at the forefront of our minds. Yeah. But where's the space for environmental issues so that we're not consistently pushing these off the table? But I I do wonder, you know, when when is the time for environmental issues? Like it's almost like, when will, when will it be my turn? You know,
0: that's literally what the earth says yeah. in the book of Moses is when will, when will I be able to rest Yeah, from all these, these things, all this violence and all this evil that's happening on me? When will I be able to rest? Um, and so that's why I, uh, I think part of, you know, if we're going to keep talking about the elephant in the room, there's a lot of single issue voters out there who will, yeah. who will determine their vote off of one thing. Right. Yeah. And they'll keep kicking the can down for other issues that they supposedly believe in for the sake of this one issue. Right. Right. And, uh, and I mean, I'm not going to lie. Do I have some single issue voting inside of me? I absolutely do. Yeah. (laughs) I really do. Um, but my single issue voting looks a lot like who's got the best environmental policy?
1: (laughs) Same. I'm like, okay. So I know that that's what's hard is for me, this, this has become one you know, where I look at candidates and I say, okay, you don't have a good environmental policy off the
0: table, off the table. Bye.
1: Yeah. Bye Felicia. So maybe I'm a hypocrite. Well, I mean, we all are, we all
0: are right. That's, that's part of, that's also part of what I love about Briscoe and firesides is that we, we're all implicated, we're all implicated. And there's nuance to all of these issues, right? That these are not bright, bright, clean lines we're drawing down. Um, But it's also, I think, it requires us to start shifting our mindset from a win-lose mindset to a win-win mindset, which is not what the world primes us for. Right. The world primes us uh, everything from our careers, our jobs, our schooling, our our sporting events. Everything primes us for a win-lose mentality, where we think if this issue is the only issue that I care about, then that means all these other issues have to lose, right? Yeah. And I want, I want a, I want a yes end mentality. Yeah. I want to say a win-win. Cause that's what the gospel is. The gospel is a win-win. I want to make the world into a win-win.
1: I think something else to be considerate of is that, you know, if we do lose something that is actually good about the system that we have in place Within our government is the notion of checks and balances that are yeah, supposed to, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that are supposed to at least, um, like provide a framework for compromise. Yeah. Whether or not we successfully do that, you know, is actually up to us. Right. But I think there's space to do that. And when we forget that that's the possibility, we're going to lose every time right every time we vote we win one but we'll lose 32 others or something you know like y- you can't you can't forget that part of life is to compromise with others and to recognize that we don't all think the same way we don't yeah. all believe the same things and that that's going to be a factor when we vote so when we don't come out on top okay how do how do i take into consideration someone else's views, combine them with mine and come to a conclusion that supports both of us. I think that's, that's one thing that I really appreciate about, you know, cap and trade policy is that we're not saying, okay, no, you can't conduct business at all. Right. But it's okay. How do we conduct conduct business better? Right. Or how do we implement change? Again, using the system that we already have in place and yeah. maybe just regulate them or like implement change in the ways that we know how. Right. I, yeah. But I think that's that's asking a lot. That's asking us to be empathetic. That's asking us to love our neighbor.
0: And then this world, this, time, this day and age, that's hard.
1: Yeah.
0: It's really hard to love our neighbor. Uh, it's inconvenient it's inconvenient for me to have to empathize and like, not just like empathize, but like actually get in the shoes of my neighbor and consider the issues that they care about and their values. Right. Because I might be progressive. I might be really liberal. Right. Um, But I need to take seriously the, the values of my conservative neighbors so that I can communicate my, my values to them in language that they can understand. Right. Right.
1: But I think that requires both sides being willing to do so good faith. Yeah. And, and like, I, I get really disheartened at the idea of losing empathy within this country, empathy and compromise. Those are the two things that like George Washington in his farewell address really tried to warn us about (laughs) anyway. But I think, you know, our, our ability to compromise and our ability to be empathetic towards others is also going to be a core factor in our ability to make change.
0: It is. It is, especially because um, the change that we need to make needs to be just change, right? It needs to be change that isn't just going to get the job done. It's going to get the job done well and addresses the some of the social issues that we've, we've had all along, right? So that's why, like— um, that's where, you know, we we, we started talking about intersectionality, that climate change is an intersectional issue and we need to be able to, um, we need to be able to stand under the issue in a really socially conscious and socially just way that addresses some of the, like, for instance, um, power plants tend to be built in black, brown and marginalized neighborhoods. Yeah. Right. And they suffer the 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 health consequences, right? The asthmatic rates in the black communities are significant percentage points higher than white communities, yeah, right. And so, if you're going to uh, if you're going to address climate change, you need to address that social issue. Right. You need to you need to figure out a way to, and which is intensely complicated and requires an intense amount of empathy.
1: Right. And the recognition that the two go hand in hand. So yeah. if we're denying one. It's likely that we're denying the other. Exactly. Which we are. <laughs> so it's it's complex. It's messy. And I think that's why people, as of late, want to wash their hands of it. Right. You know, it's easier to take yourself out of the equation than it is to try and solve it.
0: Yeah, so this is probably a good segue to us talking about political neutrality because um, this is something, honestly, that grinds my gears a little bit. <laughs> um, and I'll tell you why it grinds my gears. Um, so I work for a nonprofit, right? right? We're technically, as, an, as a nonprofit, we're, we, we have to be politically neutral. Um, corporations like to be politically neutral. Um, the inst- Like our religious, like the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, politically neutral. Right. Kind of. Theoretically they're politically neutral. (laughs) Um, but, uh, to me, political neutrality is a tacit endorsement of the status quo. Yeah. And I don't know how to get around that.
2: Hmm.
0: And let me, I mean, let me, let me tease out what I mean by the status quo. Yeah. Yeah it's an endorsement of, of the way things are at the present moment. That if I say I'm politically neutral, what I'm saying is I'm okay with the way things are right now. And I'm not going to use my voice to push things one direction or another. Right. And uh, when the present moment is, is very broken, right, is very broken in a lot of ways. And so if I, if I feign some kind of political neutrality, I'm washing my hands of the, of the current situation. I'm, I'm acting like Pontius Pilate.
1: See, but I think it goes back to that that kind of absolution of responsibility. Mm-hmm. In my mind, the church, corporations, nonprofits, that's not their responsibility. The responsibility should fall on the individual. Because I think if we each are given our agency, then we are in charge of our agency, right? right? The church, like you said, should remain politically neutral so that we theoretically have the opportunity to utilize our agency. Right. There's far too much blind, you know, blind leading the blind, blindly acting, blindly following. Like we're... Now in a in a situation where so many people don't even know where to source truth, right? So, to me, I think in some ways political neutrality is an opportunity for people to step up and take responsibility and huh. individual responsibility at that.
0: Interesting. Because so uh,
1: I don't want the church to tell me how to vote. Well, no, yeah, but I want them to tell me to vote.
0: But occasionally they will tell you how to vote, and then the state of Utah will. Uh, the all the citizens of Utah will say, no, that's not how we're gonna do it. Yeah. <laughs> we're talking about the uh, there was the a, a medical marijuana <laughs> thing that the church that the church sent out an email saying vote against this and everyone said yeah. no.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Um no that's interesting that you say that because because I I find at least in, in my experience, I find people hiding behind political neutrality as an excuse to to not do anything right? right. The, they're, they're trying to, as individuals, not just as corporations. Cause like, I, okay, I get,
1: well, I think corporations are just trying to save face.
0: Yeah. I get that. The, they're like trying to save face, but as individuals, it's, it's less, I think it, it less, um, shows its face in a, I'm politically neutral and more, I just don't get into politics. It's just too contentious for me. Right. right? And that,
1: but that's again, at an individual level.
0: No, that, uh, yeah. that's what I'm saying. Right. And so I think especially in, in our Mormon culture, our LDS culture, we have a problem with contention, right. And disagreeing with someone. And so we're, we're so like, we're so occupied with wanting to keep the, the, the quote unquote peace Mm -hmm. that we, we don't like to even talk politics or political issues or social issues at all, because it might, it might rock the boat a little bit. Yeah. Right. And so I, I know that I have friends who will, who they might not realize it, but they're hiding behind they're they're kind of they're basking in some kind of a false innocence, right? right? That they're falsely that they're they're falsely holding on to this this innocence of oh, I just don't want to get into politics. I don't like talking politics because things will get too heated, right? And what it is is it's a refusal to participate in such a br- obviously broken system. But they it's a privilege for them to be able to do that because they can't see that how implicated they are in that system and even their inaction itself is a political statement
2: yeah
1: it's true and so
0: it drives me bonkers
1: yeah but in what said like I swear it's gonna get dicey because well
0: it's good to mean you don't agree on this right because we, we can't be an echo chamber here right so I need you to push me and I'll push you
1: well <laughs> I'm saying I like I don't I'm thinking about myself and being in a Sunday school lesson and someone starting to talk about like their personal politics and me being like, okay, well no, you (laughs) know, like I don't want politics to enter the church.
0: I I don't think that's what I'm saying, but more just like interpersonal interpersonal, like like we're at work or we're, we're friends and we're at dinner or something like that. Like that, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah.
1: I think deciding to be, indecisive or deciding to be disengaged is problematic. Yeah. And like you said, like they're, they're not able to recognize their own, you know, implication in the system, but also how they affect the system, how the system affects them. Right. So in that case, we do agree, but yeah, I, I think, I think it's fine to walk the fence in some ways. Um, because I think this goes back to previous discussions we've had in other episodes um, that sometimes we're all a little bit more neutral than we want to believe. Um, But that that also opens the opportunity for us to learn a lot more and, and, and to grow and to take in what other people are saying to, to be empathetic. So in some ways I think, like you're neutral until you're not. But yeah, but <laughs> and here's the big butt.
0: We love big butts on brisket firesides. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it the problem comes when you refuse to take action yeah. or you let, you know, your indecisiveness then indicate your responsibility in taking action. So yeah. I'm not going to vote because I don't know how to vote or I'm not going to vote because I don't f- like feel strongly any yeah. which way.
0: Yeah. And that's a problem of apathy. Right. And apathy is going to be the death of the world. Right. <laughs> but I
1: feel like apathy is also sometimes mistaken for political neutrality.
0: Yeah, that's fair. And I, honestly, I would take political neutrality over apathy. Yeah. Cause apathetic, like if you,
1: Yourself, it, it's self-absorption.
0: It's self-absorption, and it's you. You can't see the privilege from which you're operating under. Right? That that if I if I'm if I'm apathetic about an issue, it's because the issue doesn't affect me. Right? Right. Versus if uh, if there's an issue like um, like you know I have I have cancer because this power plant was leaching chemicals into the water yeah. the the groundwater system that I was drinking from. That totally impacts me. Right. Right, And I don't have the privilege of not participating in the political system to change that. Right. Yeah. And so for someone living upstream from that issue who doesn't have cancer because they weren't drinking that water to wash their hands of that issue is, is like the, the definition of, of self-absorption and like the anti-empathy. What is that? Anti-empathy?
1: Empathy.
0: Empathy? -empathy. (laughs) Anti-empathy. Like they're, they're not empathizing. Right, and and for them to be able to to stand under the issue requires them to get into the shoes of the people who are if impacted by these issues, um, and so th- that's why I uh, that's why I just I I I I don't like political neutrality, because <laughs> yeah. it gives people I feel like it gives people a shield to hide behind. Yeah, even when political neutrality itself might not be problematic, I think it can be used in problematic ways.
1: Right, and I think sometimes too people associate. Political neutrality and apathy, or, or or rather people say, you know, I'm politically neutral, but really they're not. They just don't want to, like, wield a side or right. wield a, a belief because they're afraid it will become— contentious with someone by simply having that belief or, or that they have to be combative over that belief. But I I don't think you do. I think you can exist in a sphere. I feel like I do it every day and that's not to toot my own horn. I'm just saying, I feel like I exist in a sphere every day where people are constantly harping on the things that I believe, Mm -hmm. but I don't need to become defensive or combative over them because that I can still believe that. You know, someone else having a different belief than me does not need to be a threat per se, you know, like, sure, we may cancel each other's votes out, (laughs) but, but like at the end of the day, we're still both human. There's reasons that we have the beliefs that we have. We're not just conjuring them up from, you know, nothing. Right. So I I don't know. I, yeah, I think political neutrality in some ways is somewhat inexcusable as far as, you know, if you have certain things that you believe and you want them to continue to take place in our society, then claiming political neutrality means you don't necessarily care to see how society plays out. Right. I don't know if that even made sense.
0: Yeah, no. And I think I need to, I think something that also needs to be addressed because uh, I know we talk about it, we'll, we, we will talk about it in future episodes and it's something that's kind of been a running theme is this, uh, you know, in in like more mature forms of spirituality, there's there's wisdom in non-duality that when you exist in non-dual, like it's it, nothing is as binary or as black and white as we want to make it. Right. And, uh, I think that's part of the problem. The problem of politicization, right. Is that it, 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 makes these issues black and white. It seems as though there's only one way to, to agree with these issues or one way to act on these issues. Right. right. Um, when in reality, that's just not the case. Right. Um, but I think, so when you exist in kind of a non-dual space, what that means is you're willing to let things be extremely nuanced. You're willing to let you know, shades of gray and lots of colors exist and you're willing to hold contradicting ideas together without having to collapse them into one thing or another. Right. Yes. And so you got really excited when I said that.
1: <laughs> well, I'm just thinking of that, that quote in first reformed, one of oh, my favorite that movie. movies, but where he says, you know, like, um, wisdom is being able to hold two contradictory, mm-hmm. contradictory ideas in your head. At the same time. Right. But I think I just kind of butchered the quote, but, <laughs> but that, that truly is wisdom is to yeah. allow for nuance.
0: Yeah. But I think what's hard about it is that sometimes I think feigning a, uh, a political neutrality or, uh, or of, of a washing my hands of political issues because I feel like I'm above them is a it's like spiritual bypassing right you're right. You're, you're feigning a spiritual superiority yeah. in order to not engage with these lowly issues of the earth right right and uh, in order and you know what with politic with politics and like voting and stuff at some point you do have to collapse the issue down into right. something right you can't hold them like uh, hold contradictory things together in order to get a better understanding of what the issues are. Yeah. Um, so that you can empathize, so you can love, so that you can gain some, some clarity through uncertainty. Um, but at the end of the day, you're going to have to cast a vote. Right. Let's shift into, and I think we're going to, again, it's, it's good that I think we, we have some, some difference from each other here. Personal responsibility versus communal responsibility. Let me ask you this. So that. What is the use of blame? <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Cause so, yeah. so here's what I, here's what I mean by that. I don't want to practice scapegoating, right? Because by scapegoating, I mean, this is all ExxonMobil's fault and I have no responsibility here. Right. It's all their fault. And they're, they're the ones who need to be responsible to fix this. Right. That's scapegoating. Right. Cause it's, it's saying I'm not the problem. The problem's over there. Right. That's not what I mean by what's the use of blame. Yeah. Right. Uh, I think what I'm what I'm trying to get at is how can we how can we understand the I guess it's scapegoating versus accurately sizing up the problem so that we can create a solution, right? And how can we accurately size up the problem if we don't have an understanding, an honest understanding, an honest and just understanding of who were the players in creating the problem?
1: I think you're right. Um, I, I just keep thinking about, um, I recently read Michael Rothberg's, uh, The Implicated Subject. Um, and, and again, it kind of goes into a lot of, um, issues with, with, um, you know, violence and, and these kind of political factions, um, and oppression that's occurred, um, Throughout history of of various groups of of um, individuals and races, um, but I just keep thinking about this idea of the implicated subject, mm-hmm. um, and that each of us are implicated because we benefit from the very opp- oppressive systems that we've put into place, right. whether or not we are directly involved in setting up that that structure but if that structure has been constructed, you know, in a way that we now benefit from it directly, um, that we're implicated in, in what it produces and, and what it has produced. And so we therefore need to take responsibility, um, for that, those issues and, and for what they have done, um, you know, to, to individuals in the past, um, and so to take that same kind of framework or understanding and apply it to environmental issues, you know, we are all implicated in the destruction of the earth. Yeah. And and because of that, we are directly benefiting from, you know, the exploits of it.
0: To live is to have an impact. Exactly. To be alive is to have Yeah, to be none a of us are
1: carbon neutral. None of yeah. us, you know, we all participate. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, I think we need to take responsibility. None of us is without blame. You know, yeah. it's kind of like... Um, Let you,
0: his perfect cast, the first stone. Exactly.
1: <laughs> exactly. No, exactly. Yeah. I just keep thinking of that. And so, if we keep, you know, continuing to pass this stone of blame, then we're never going to get at the root of the problem. And we're also never going to take responsibility and correct our own actions. And so, I think... That's, you know, blame can be powerful, um, in due cause, you right. know, where, where blame it's less must like blame be assigned. or responsibility, right? That's what I'm saying. It's, yeah. it's taking blame out and, and reinvigorating it with responsibility, which also means, you know, okay, instead of blame, I have the ability to grow and, and correct my actions as right. opposed to s- simply just saying, yeah, I did that.
0: Right. I think something like as an example to put flesh on these ideas, right. Cause we're just kind of talking the abstract. Yeah. Um, there's this really good YouTube channel called Climate Town and it's kind of new um but this guy is a uh, he's a he's graduated in like climate science or something and he's he's really really funny and he uh he released a video last August called Your Carbon Footprint is a Lie <laughs> and uh it's very it was very eye-opening video and so this is kind of an example of what I mean by personal responsibility versus communal responsibility right so in 2000 11. I don't know. The, the, you know, the big BP oil spill, yeah. right. That, that, that just spat tons and tons of oil into the Gulf of Mexico. Um, at least I'm pretty sure that's the one anyways. Um, uh, after in the, in the aftermath of that, it was obviously, a you know, a, uh, a, 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 uh, crap. What's the word? It's like a faux pas. It's like, uh, it's a, it was PR nightmare. So oh, yeah. right, so it's a PR nightmare to be in oil. Right, right. So for BP, and especially it's a PR nightmare for them because it was their oil that was leaching and, and killing all these animals. Right? right, it's not a good look for yeah. you. Right, and so in the aftermath of that, they kind of rebranded and did some like if you go into Washington DC, throughout all the all the tunnels and the subways, like all the posters on the wall are like by BP, and they're all about green and they're all about green energy. And they're all, so like they, they, they changed their, their, their messaging pretty significantly after that. But they also invented this thing called carbon footprint. Mm-hmm. It came, the whole idea of carbon footprint came out of BP research after this. Mm-hmm. And what it was, was they, um, and it's really funny when you look at the spending of, of their, their, of uh, BP spending for this whole campaign. Um, however billions of dollars, this whole marketing campaign was globally, 90 like 90% of it was devoted to marketing versus like 10% of it was devoted to actually changing the way that they do business. And the whole marketing campaign was to put the burden on the consumer and not on them. Hmm. So that, so it was like, if, if you as an individual lower your carbon footprint, we as a corporation can keep our carbon footprint the same.
2: Hmm.
0: And so, and so this corporation put push the responsibility down onto uh, the consumer as individuals rather than taking it on themselves. Right. And so like that is a really good example of what I mean by personal responsibility versus communal responsibility. Cause like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to like mince words about this. If all of us recycled and all of us ate vegetarian, that wouldn't fix the problem. There's the, 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 the machine of the human economic engine just has too much momentum Mm -hmm. that if all of us got our carbon, you know, our carbon, our quote unquote carbon individual carbon footprints down to some kind of a neutral, just as Americans, there's it's not a true neutral.
1: Yeah. But don't you think it would influence the way business is done?
0: I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not. Right, because like we've both read *Merchants of Doubt*. Economist, yeah. We've both read *Merchants of Doubt*, where where these corporations will sow seeds of of doubt into the populace so that they can keep doing business as usual. Right. Right. That I think the bottom line is their god.
1: Yeah, but I imagine like a complete reversal of that, like where we start influencing corporations because of the change that we. Like you just, might be more I, optimistic I'm, than I am. No, and I think I am. I'm <laughs> I'm living in a I mean, yeah, I am I think I'm a little more optimistic or maybe a little more naive, whichever one care. you wanted. Whatever. Um, dub me. <laughs> but I I do wonder if, you know, that sphere of influence were reversed because they would then have no consumer, you know. I don't know. I think about this a lot. So it's hard. Yeah.
0: This whole personal. So like, obviously the answer is we want all of it. Yeah. Right. And so I think what, what I mean by that is like in our conversations with other people, of course, I want to encourage people to recycle. Of course, I want to encourage people to like, to drive less or to bike more, to walk more, but I'm not, I'm not foolish enough to think that at the end of the day, that's enough.
1: Exactly. That's not
0: good enough. What is good enough is us holding our own, the the corporations that we buy from accountable. Yeah, it's like.
1: But if we want to go back to nuance and yeah. personal responsibility yeah. and thinking about like our spiritual responsibility too, right. I mean, there are verses of scripture that say we're going to have to answer to God for the decisions that we make here on earth, right? Yeah. And if any of those are hindering the earth, then we're going to have to answer to God for those too. And so at what point are we willing to also accept our own individual and personal responsibility to make the world a better place as well, you know? Like, yeah, yeah, you're right. Okay one can in the trash can is not going to make a difference. It's not necessarily, but
0: holding Exxon's feet to the fire (laughs) might make a difference.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And, and, and communal responsibility in that sense and, and corporate responsibility absolutely will make a difference, but there's also value to personal responsibility because you can't hold other people. Like we said earlier, blame, we can't hold other people to the same standard if we're not living up to that standard independently it's pretty individual skin in the
0: game right yeah. if it, if no one's gonna care what we have to say until we have skin in the game
1: right right and it's it's extremely hypocritical
0: oh it's so hypocritical
1: <laughs> to say yeah you know you need to change everything you're doing yeah but let me keep you yeah. know continuing on in destructive practices yeah personally
0: yeah because i know um in past episodes, we've already talked, I'm pretty sure we've already talked about that, or maybe it's in a future episode, and I'm spoiling something, that, <laughs> that heaven is something we do as a community, that Zion is something we build, and it's a community, Zion is a community, Zion isn't an individual, Zion is a community. Right. It's something we all do together. It exists between us. It exists in our relationships. And uh, I, because I, I believe that, I also believe that evil is something we do as a community, right? That evil, sure, evil can be done by individuals, right? We've seen that. We saw that this summer. We've seen it all for the last four years, that individual, well, we've seen it our entire lives. Let's be fair, that individuals can participate in evil, but that evil, capital E, capital E, evil, is yeah. something we do as a society. Right. It's something that we all accept that there are that there are evils we accept as a society just because just to keep the the engine of society moving forward, right And so uh, and so when it comes down to personal responsibility versus communal responsibility, I'm thoroughly in the camp of yes and that that just because you're taking personal responsibility does not mean we can't we shouldn't be holding. Us as a community, in the forms of governments, in the form of corporations, in the form of non- nonprofits and churches and organizations, accountable as well. Right. We should be holding everybody and everything accountable.
1: Yeah, I agree. I but I, I think, at every level, we need to take responsibility. At every level. Every we level. Take responsibility.
0: Yeah, which is inconvenient. Damn it. It's <laughs> the theme of the episode. It is sponsored by inconvenience. Sponsored by inconvenience. Um, let me ask you a question. Yeah. Um, and this, this is more just like a fun question than anything. Um, does the church as an institution have a responsibility? Fun. Fun. <laughs> um, cause I mean, I think the church can have a responsibility and still be politically neutral.
1: Yeah. I think about this. I also think about this a lot and I, it, it pains me to, to repeatedly want to see the church and the leaders of the church to stand up every six months and say Mm -hmm. like climate change is real. It's time that we start taking serious action as members. Yeah. And that's why I think sometimes I'm like the church definitely could use the theology that we have To talk about this issue. Its
0: own theology?
1: Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. To talk about this issue in a way that is politically neutral. Yeah. But I think in some ways, I don't want to say that the church is scared, but I do think that the church is scared.
0: Oh, I think they're scared. I think they're scared of them. I mean- I th- have I, Have you seen the churches, the, the comment sections of Facebook oh, on Facebook after the church yeah. posts things about vaccines or about masks?
1: Yeah. I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but my roommate does, um, works for the church yeah. as, um, a freelance kind of like she's hired yeah. to go through the comment sections oh my actually. Gosh. And it is insane. Yeah. The comments on, I don't know if we're going to include this, but the comments on the response to the vaccine, um, to COVID in general, to wearing masks, um, to other Oaks talk about black lives matter. Yeah. And, and it wasn't even a talk about black lives matter. It was mentioned a it. talk. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to me, like that doesn't read that reads politically responsible, not, not like like. It's issue positive, yeah. but still politically neutral, in my opinion.
2: Yeah, my but a,
1: people are reading it, yeah, as politically charged.
0: Yeah, which is so weird. It is so weird, especially because like, like the things that you're referencing are the bare minimum, right? The bare minimum. Like if I was the one scripting it, I'd have them come out way stronger on certain things, right? right? On certain issues. Um, and then we'd really, we'd really be, you know, Jesus says that I'm, I, I, I bring a sword or whatever to divide us under blah, 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 whatever. Right.
1: But this also makes me think that I'm like, okay, okay. Now, you know, like now's the time then, you know, if we're <laughs> going to talk about it's yeah. time, you know, we, if we said that we can say this too, we can yeah. talk about this. So it, but Sometimes I, think, I feel a little frustrated by it. I think
0: the church is, is uh, scared, intimidated. You know, their own member, our own membership is so divided right now. Right. Um, and especially when we consider that in Utah, in the state of Utah, if, you know, it, when we break down those, those statistics, obviously the majority of people are Republican in the state, um, that it's hard for the church to say, like, I think the, the implicit assumption is that, as a Christian organization in the United States and especially in Utah, of course, republicanism is is the only way to go, right? That that's 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 the the only the only thing that we can do. Or the only party that we can be a part of. Do you think that's an unfair assumption? I think it is. An unfair or a fair assumption?
1: No, I think it's unfair.
0: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I mean it growing up, did you not did you not? I mean, you grew up in Salt Lake, yeah, and I grew up in Provo, so those are different worlds. The yeah. Curtain is very strong, <laughs> a little around the point of the mountain, but uh, I remember growing up and like thinking, "Oh, liberal people, Democrats, they're they're the bad guys." I legit, I legit had those thoughts.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm not gonna lie, I was like indoctrinated by by that belief yeah. as a child, but. Does that still exist? Like,
0: Oh, I absolutely think it exists. Yeah. I mean, probably less so. Yeah. And I think the generation is kind of breaking that.
1: Yeah. And I think like environmentally and now I mean, you know, like as a community, Mm -hmm. um, the environment that you're raised in probably pushes you one way or the other. Yeah. But I, I think about this too, being raised by conservative parents and not, being particularly conservative, um, <laughs> on my own. There we go. Oh, cards on the table. Wow. But, um, yeah, I think about that a lot, Yeah. you know, where, where did my shift take place? And also why, why did I believe that as a child? Yeah. Because in some ways I feel like my spirituality indicates so much of how I vote now. Yeah. Even more so than it and I mean, you know, I wasn't voting at 12, but <laughs> but in the ways that I was thinking, you know, it wasn't indicated by yeah, my like religious convictions. Yeah,
0: I think I think this is something that unfairly gets um that liberal people, yeah. That liberal people, unfortunately, like that. The the uh, the assumption is that we're all just we're all just voting off based on secular ideas, right? Mm-hmm. Devoid of our own religious beliefs. When no, mm-hmm. no, no, no. I vote the way that I do because of my religious beliefs, yeah. and that's what's so bonkers is that we can all belong to the same church and go to church, uh, you know, yeah. particularly the sacrament uh, in pew by pew with people who view the gospel so radically different from yeah. us.
1: Well, that's like, when I do read the comment sections on those videos, I think that's what makes me the most sad sometimes is that, okay, at the found, you and I both believe in the same gospel, Mm -hmm. or at least we claim to, and yet the things you're saying feel so contrary to the core of the gospel. Yeah which is Jesus Christ.
0: Yeah, which is love.
1: Which is love. And yet you're here making comments that discount groups of people.
2: Yeah.
1: as equal to you um or that you've let certain ideas run rampant in your mind to the point where truth and gospel truth no longer like inform your spiritual beliefs.
0: Right. Right. So I think this is, this is a really great, um, segue to kind of the final topic for the episode, which is identity and like loyalty. Right. And so I, uh, I think what happens to us is like when we were kids, right? Our identity was, as a poli- certain political party. And when you're a kid, it's hard to see outside that identity. Right. And so yeah, it's hard, and you have
1: no context you have no other context, than right? what you're being told at home. Yeah. And so yeah.
0: the, it, it's hard to hold children accountable for that, but it's, it's still that same idea of um, what story am I living out of? Mm-hmm. And is my story, has my story become my identity? Mm-hmm. Um, and how can I, break free of that story to live out of, out of reality. Right. Because, and that's what I love about, about the gospel and about, um, and about what we talk about so much on this podcast is that um, the spirit in the book of Mormon and like, I think it's the book of Jacob. He says that the, the spirit will teach you things as they really are. And what I take that, what I hear that that verse saying is that the spirit enables us to live out of the universal, the huge, gigantic story of reality, mm-hmm. instead of this tinier story of what my political identity says about yeah. reality, right? And, uh, and so I think that's that's where I, I want like I want to come down in this episode is is how do we begin disengaging from our political stories and engaging with the story and the story being the universal reality that we all belong to.
1: I, I mean, I think I said this earlier, but just yeah. going back to the the notion of empathy, um, and and really investing in empathy for others, mm-hmm. but also living the gospel at its core, which is Jesus Christ, and and living those principles as He would have lived them, right, and then extending our faith outward, but also uh, our you know, constructing our political identities, um, with those in mind, if that's not too radical to say that, like we keep Jesus at the center of our lives. Um, and that, you know, we, we allowed those, those principles to then inform our political identity.
0: Yeah. And I think by, by saying keep Jesus at the center, we also need to um, have an accurate understanding of who Jesus was and like, and asking the question, who did, who, who did Jesus, who was he loyal to? Right. He was loyal to the poor and the marginalized of right. society. He was, you know, he wasn't loyal to Rome. He wasn't loyal to the synagogues and the the churches of his time. Yeah. He was loyal to the, the, the people who were the losers of society. Um, and uh, I think that, that should that should make us question where our loyalties lie and where do my political loyalties lie? Do they lie with a party or do they lie with the very real people who are impacted by our industries, our corporations or our governmental decisions, right? That my, my choices need to not be determined like by a party line. They need to be determined by my relationships with the real world.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that your relationship with the world should consider perspectives beyond your own Uh in the same way, again, that Jesus would have done, you know, it it goes back to, like you said, caring for the poor and needy. Right. Um, And considering giving a voice to the voiceless by caring for them.
0: Which goes back to our earlier point of the conversation. Who speaks for the earth?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who, who does? does?
0: We, we need to. We need to begin speaking for the earth because the earth doesn't have, well, I mean, the earth does have a voice. Her voice is fires and droughts and hurricanes out of season, right? That, that, that's the, those are the voice of the earth, but we need to, we need to pipe up for in our own human um, organizations and machines so that we can actually translate that voice into action.
1: And again, allowing our theology to indicate how, how we construct our political identity too. Yeah. Because if we truly believe our theology at its core, that we respect the earth, that it's a beautiful creation of gods, that it is a spiritual and a physical creation, mm-hmm. then that should also indicate, you know, on some level how we feel... Policy should affect it. How we feel, right? Um, you know, th- those actions that are taking against it should play
0: out. And I think sometimes our talk about policy or big political action or change, whatever, can divorce politics from reality. Right? That I, when I was doing some research for this episode, um, I was reading a little bit of Wendell Berry. And I, Wendell Berry, he talks about how maybe instead of talking about the environment in quotes that, which is this huge bucket word, right? It's this rhetorical bucket that means so much. We talk about trees, we talk about rocks, we talk about soil, which are things that we can find in our own backyards and we can find in our own cities and we can put our hands on and we can actually encounter. Yeah,
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and (laughs) Yeah. It's like, let's not make the environment such an abstract, you know, form beyond ourselves. You know, we participate in it every day. We exist in it every day. And so it shouldn't necessarily be something that feels so distant from us.
0: Yeah. No, I think if we were, if we were to try and sum this up, this conversation up, it's to start letting our politics be centered on what's real yeah, instead of what, you know, our political identities might say or is real about reality or whatever. And I think the best way to encounter the real is to walk through your neighborhood. Mm -hmm. It's to, you know, it's to go on hikes with your family. It's to, it's to go on picnics, right? It's to, it's to get out into your community and experience reality. Um, and then to start making choices based on those experiences rather than, What some talking heads on some political news station might tell tell you.
1: Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of Bristlecone Firesides. If you liked this conversation, please subscribe and share widely with your friends, family, and neighbors. Consider leaving us a rating through the podcasting app of your choice. For more from Abby, Madison, and the Bristlecone family, follow us on Twitter and Instagram and visit our website to enjoy more earthy content of faith, activism, and belonging to the earth. From the Aspen Mountains, juniper forests, red rock deserts, and salty lakes of Utah, we wish you peace and goodness as you strive to find yourself in the family of the earth.